Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. I'm Rachel Woody. I'm here with Rich Schmidt. It is January 19th and we're at the McDaniel family home and we are here with Donna Jean McDaniel who is going to start us off with family history which of course involves Baptist and Linfield history. So Donna Jean, you can take it away. Well thank you. I'm delighted to be asked. That's very kind of you. I have a little different view of how Linfield started than you do. So I've entitled this, The Evolution of an Idea. And I started with Webster. Um, evolution is a noun, development, formation, and result. And not all of us are on the same track of how this started. So, the roots of Linfield and the First Baptist Church, McMinnville, Oregon, have been gleaned from a number of sources. I've gathered the information from the Reverend C.H. Mattoon series of the early territorial gatherings and the leaders of the Baptist Church. Also, inspired pragmatism by Marv Henberg, Bricks Without Straw by Dr. Jonas A. Stein Jonason, and he also wrote 100 Years of History of the First Baptist Church. The most interesting source has been talking with the old timers during my 45 years of church membership in Stein in particular, and I'm not an old timer. Okay, institutions do not grow full blown. They're built one day at a time. There's an ebb and flow in all growth, and when did it begin? This is really an elusive statistic. At some point in the evolution of school and church, they stuck a pin in the calendar and they said, here we are. After I tell you the story, you decide. Both these institutions were closely bound from the very beginning of the Oregon Territory. They were a single entity for many. Linfield was and has been served by a number of ministers of the Baptist Church. They were not only the only territorial church, because we also had, over the Oregon Trail, Quakers, Presbyterians, Methodists, Catholics, and the Christian Church. All have a strong presence from that same time period, and their schools still exist. The University of Portland is Catholic-inspired. Lewis and Clark was inspired by the Presbyterians. Willamette University, the Methodist, Pacific University, Christian Church, and those are just a few. There are many. Jim Lockett gives this description. A early church, and he was a Baptist in our church while he was doing this, also a school principal in McMinnville. Early church history in Yamhill County makes an interesting story. While farming took up most of their time, the people spent many hours planning and organizing church and schools. The disciples of Christ were the best organized to carry out their goal of converting all the souls to Christ in the new territory of Oregon. They had met and planned their strategy before coming over the Oregon Trail, and they were quick to establish schools and meeting houses. They wanted all white settlers 
to follow their beliefs. The Methodists, Presbyterians, and Catholics arrived with a set goal of converting the Indians. The Baptists arrived during those early days and were unorganized, <laughs> which I found very amusing, as a religious group. Most of the Baptists had been Baptist, most of the people had been Baptists in Missouri. Then in May of 1944, without benefit of minister, deacon, or recognition consul, a small number of Baptists in the wilds of the West came into union. And thus, the first Baptist church in the Oregon Territory became the West Union Baptist Church. It is still going and is also now a historic designation. The little congregation struggled along as it best it could and in 1845, whoops, there's a mistake, I put 19, you just have to go to correct this. <laughs> Reverend Vincent Snelling arrived and became the first Baptist minister in the West. Religious freedom and education and a little free land now and then have been compelling reasons for many people to have left their homes for faraway America. There had been at least 200 years or more of New World interest when the big wagon trains formed in Missouri in 1843 and 1844. These hardy souls looked forward to a 2,000 mile walk. Territorial expansion was always a driving force, coupled with advertised free land and the hope for new frontier, uh, never mind the native population or the British presence. In 1844, Ezra Fisher and Hezekiah Johnson, love those names, earned appointment as missionaries to the Oregon Territory by the American Baptist Home Mission Society. Fisher had assisted in the founding of Franklin College in Indiana and Johnson in founding of Denison College in Ohio. To quote Jonas A. Stein Jonason in his history of Linfield, Bricks Without Straw, in 1939. These two missionaries did come down the Oregon Trail to the trailhead in Oregon City, Oregon Territory. They started to gather Baptists together for the purpose of a Western church and school. By 1848, they had enough people to form the Willamette Association with 87 founding members, all Baptist, of course. Their first educational effort was to found a primary school near Oregon City. It was said that few of the 87 Baptists of the association saw any need for such a frippery, since all hands were needed to fell trees, build cabins, clear on your 640 acres, granted husband and wife. However, Fisher and Johnson persisted and they asked them to take the long view and in 1845, after much talking, they formed the Oregon Baptist Education Society to pursue uh, their denominational and educational interests, according to Dr. Jonathan, who is a friend who will now be called Stein, which he, he was, everybody knew him as Stein. I, he must have chosen that. A seemingly tireless historian. It's hard to start an institution, no matter how much you think it's necessary. And this grade school only lasted a decade. The primary instruction took place in a meeting house in town with the help from the Home Mission Society to keep it going. The association argued over where to go, how to go, 
and if it was going to be a go. For a number of years, this decision held in the balance. Land was offered, new locations sought, and opinions aplenty varied. With jockeying personalities, the idea persisted of securing a Baptist college for the territory, which seemed a bit presumptuous at the time. Literacy was not for all, but common sense would get you through. This was illustrated when I examined a number of donation land claims in the National Archives in Seattle. Most were signed with an X, which is no indication of intelligence, but of educational opportunity. If they could just settle on a site, well, the pioneers felt it was hard to revive the Oregon City effort, but please settle on a location. Denominational pride and hope that a college would unify its members led the Willamette Association to appoint a site committee in 1855. Stein loved to describe the association members who were safe from a life on a committee by, you'll find out, subsequent happenings, what prompted the people to make the decision that they made. One of the first six settlers of McMinnville was William T. Newby, who had come on the 1844 wagon train. Newby, along with Sebastian Adams, who had arrived in 1850, was promoting plats of land along the Yamhill River. The pair surmised that a local high school might attract buyers. Newby was quick to see the opportunity and offered five acres of land and a new building funded by the locals. You don't know you're going to buy this, but you are. Anyway, funded by locals and, and local subscription, and they did. <laughs> Never without being beset by problems, the designs of the building. The building was too large for McMinnville High School or McMinnville College to maintain. What to do next? Believing that their venture required a denominational affiliation, anyway, some help. Newby and Adams offered it to their own Christian church, who were already establishing schools at Bethel at Monmouth, and they turned them down. Here they are. <laughs> Rather unfinished building. Stein says they cast their net wider and picked up the Baptist publicity and gossip. They contacted the site committee with an offer that all could happily agree to. For heaven's sakes, let's do it. The decision produced a fundraising among the Baptists that raised $3,600, a very handsome sum for that period of time. The funds were enough to complete the building and hire John Wesley Johnson as a teacher in 1857. Johnson later became the second president of McMinnville College and later the first president of the University of Oregon in 1876, which had two McDaniels in the class. In January 31, 1858, the state of Oregon granted a charter for McMinnville College, later named Linfield College. Forty-five members from the Willamette Association were in support. Now remember, there were 87, so there was not unanimous support here. And these 40-plus are considered founders, even though this association has fostered a normal school. This was a real stretch for their imagination. It would appear that less than half of the association voted to establish the college. This date is considered the founding. 
Well, Stein would say it's all in the way you look at it. I feel the school had a long gestation period. The idea was alive and well in Oregon City in 1844 with the two missionaries who had already founded two colleges. These men never gave up their dream and they did have a normal school active for 10 years. They organized and promoted and promoted some more. McMinnville College was in session when Professor Johnson in 18, with Professor Johnson in 1858 as evolution continued. Even after the securing of a college charter, it would be 25 years before they had a college graduate, which I think is a startling fact. Clearly these things had to be built up. We could say it grew into a college over a long period of time. It may have been viewed as a necessity by many, but gathering the resources, leadership, financing, building and staffing of colleges took a long time in this age of hands-on farming, starting from nothing or very little, but family and your will to survive. On January 19th, 1858, William and Sarah Newby formally trans transferred 10 acres of land, including the wonderful L-shaped building, to the trustees of the college. One notable condition, easily endorsed by the Baptists, demanded that the title revert to the local school district if ever, ever, liquor was served on the premises or given away. Present-day Linfield no longer occupies the original Newby Platt. They had given the land to the First Baptist Church of McMinnville. Therefore, all conditions have been met. The Reverend George C. Chandler became the first president and Christian leader of the college. It'd be another nine years before the Baptists from the South Yamhill Church were asked to form a chapel at the school and share in the work and the teaching. At the 100th anniversary, Stein was asked to write the church history, which he titled 100 Years of Witnessing. For all of his research done, there are blank spots, yet school and church connections were chronicled from 1844 on. For the early years, it appears that the educational program was for Baptists only. The college endeavored to reach a larger group because they financially needed to, and that shift was not viewed favorably. But paying students were needed and the school struggled financially off and on for decades. The church and school were united in their efforts. Stein writes, for 10 years or more the old college building with an L-shaped wooden was an L-shaped wooden structure that stood on the corner of First and Cowles and that had served as the center of Baptist work. It was a built on a round rock foundation, as uh, one of their later churches were, and there was a stove in every room and wooden water to be carried in. It went from plumb to a downhill slope in every room. It was too large, poorly built, and never really finished. It was there in 1858 or 1859 that the Reverend George C. Chandler became the first president of McMinnville College. Remember, there was no enrollment, only from normal school. So Chandler organized the first Sunday school and about the same time held the first prayer meeting ever held in the community. 
Baptists still belong to the South Yamhill Church, six mile west of town, which is a very long ride by horse and buggy. Organized in 1856, this was the third oldest Baptist church in Oregon and probably the Pacific Coast. On request, 12 came to McMinnville to establish a church in the school, in truth, a chapel, and they were invited in 1867, and that is considered the uh, Baptist church birthday, which is in uh, 217, will be 150 years ago. I like to establish the social and spiritual outlook of these folks as illuminated by the rules of church membership. Discipline reduced the number of members quite heavily, and the more zealous participated with more vigor. Grounds for exclusion were numerous, including intoxication, immoral conduct, profanity, tending balls, playing cards, horse racing, gambling, slander, conduct, conduct unbecoming a Christian, dancing and frolicking at parties, so that's really bad, and disorderly conduct, and there was more. <laughs> We assumed that this was part of the school and college training because they had been asked to come in and form this chapel. Exclusion was called rescinding the hand of fellowship, which I guess happened quite frequently. Well, be tight if you went to the dance on Saturday night. There was also a prohibition against smoking on the campus until after the Second World War. The returning vets turned that one around. It's amusing to see that the reverse is happening now, and in, you now have smoke-free zones for good health by legislative decree. <laughs> the close cooperation between church and school went on for about 100 years. Every year, the Baptist churches of Oregon would raise money for Linfield and were encouraged to make Linfield a part of their missionary efforts and budget. There were a large number of students attending church and classes provided for them. Many pastors sent their children to Linfield because they were safe there. You could be a member of uh, what we called watch care. That meant that you could be a member of the local church and your home church at the same time. And if you were in watch care membership, you could ask for a church family as a sponsor, and many did. And some of those friendships lasted a, a lifetime. Many faculty members from Linfield were and are members of the, of the First Baptist Church. They have provided strong leadership. A great many were seminary graduates and have taught courses, led the government of the church, and been a guiding force. It's not unusual to count a dozen ordained people or more in, men in membership, especially any time in the last century. In the last 25 years, the church has taken a vigorous role in welcoming all who wish to come. They've performed gay marriages, one legal, and blessings when it was not, and they are now um, strong advocates for the homeless. A bit of a, it's a bit of a stretch from 150 years ago and a white man's church, but it is in harmony with the needs of the time and the current sense of mission as they plan the church plans to celebrate 150 years in McMinnville. Just for fun, this morning I sat down to. Uh, see how many Linfield people were still involved at the church. 
Uh, Martha Van Cleve is the church moderator, which is head of the governing body. Bill Miller has been teaching Old Testament for 20 years, and that seems like a long time to stay in one class. Either I was a poor learner or it was fascinating, and I'll go for the fascinating. Linfield people that are in the church right now are Dr. Charles Walker and Sherry, Tom and Jean Michael, uh, Donna and Scott and Bill Miller, Frank and Barbara Nelson, Scott and Susan Chambers, Jim and Lucita Duke, Roger Dell, Myrtle Frick, Bill and Jane Apel, Mickey Howard, Duffy Reynolds, Cheryl Roberts, Marilyn Van Dyke, Craig and Faye Singletary, and the earlier pictures of the school show practically the entire family, faculty being a part of the church. And since about 1970, these ideas have changed among what students want in schools and so forth. But uh, it is impossible to separate the two for the 150 years. Now, I, have a, I wrote, got up this morning and I wrote for you an all-American story. We smile at people who could bring up one of their favorite topics under any circumstances, and we wonder what this story has to do with the origins of the Baptist Church and the founding of Linfield. Once upon a time, an eight-year-old girl wondered how did we get to America and where did we come from? She asked her French and English grandfather to tell her what he knew. The wondering and answers have played out over a period of the last 76 years. And a large book uh, of 17 generations of family. A family tree spreads wide branches in that period of time. And I'll tell you about one of the sturdy branches. This story begins on 734 and ends at 1029 or something like that. In fact, there are connecting links from this branch which go through the whole book. Back to Once Upon a Time and the opening of the Fulkerson story, and I quote from my book, All names change through history, this family and yours. Names evolve. This one starts with Holkerson, Volkerson, Fulkerson. Anyone who has done Scandinavian research knows that there are many changes leading up, especially in those countries, to that name which carried across America and it still stands as Fulkerson. The progenitor of all Fulkersons in America appears to be Dirk Holgerson, a Norwegian ship's carpenter. I think we mostly settled with carpenters and vineyard workers, you know, we're, we're all from that, that good solid soil background. <laughs> and he prospered in the colony of New Amsterdam. Under my watch, their story starts in 1630 and goes to the present day. The generations migrated from New York to New Jersey to North Carolina, Kentucky, Missouri, and seven generations later found them walking to Oregon. They represent the high points of change in American history in war and peace. James Monroe Fulkerson moved his family to Campbell County, Tennessee in Platte City County, Missouri. In the spring of 1847, they started to Oregon. 
The whole church membership voted to come as a group to be mutually helpful and help one another establish in Oregon. Church membership wasn't taking, taken lightly at this time or for the next hundred years. Here we are in Oregon with a donation clan claim at Holmes Gap outside of Recreal. Their near neighbors on the next 640 acres were named McDaniel. So you see how circumstances can be manipulated and I have manipulated you. Deacon Fulkerson was profiled uh, in the Mattoon Annals of Oregon, which are in your archives. Few had a well-rounded education at this time, but James Fulkerson was one of the lucky ones. Here are the facts to show you that he was one of the enthusiastic founders of Linfield College. He was born in Lee County, Virginia in 1803. He arrived in Oregon with his church, which many did. They came as groups because they needed help. And if it wasn't a church group, it was relatives. They said, I'll come along, I'll help you. Uh, cousins, uncles, whatever. But they did come in groups. Fulkerson had been a county judge in both Missouri and Oregon. He was a member of the Constitutional Convention in uh, Missouri, and later he was a legislator in Oregon. Well, he was one of the founding members, members of the Willamette Association of Baptists in 1848 and one of the stalwarts thereafter. He was a member of the La Creole Baptist Church, founded in 1846, one year before the Fulkersons arrived. He was considered a very important Oregon Baptist leader, important enough to chastise Joshua McDaniel that his family may have grown up doing the sin sinful thing of raising tobacco in the Blue Ridge Mountains for a number of generations in the South, but he must stop growing it in Oregon or he could not marry his daughter. So he did. Aside from great-grandson Jim's McDaniel's comment this morning, he may have stopped the growing of evil tobacco in Oregon in its tracks, but he didn't stop the medical use of red top rye whiskey. Old Red Top. Well, at any rate, <laughs> one of the incorporators of McMinnville, he was one of the incorporators of McMinnville College and actually for many, many years was on the board of trustees. I hope he got to see a graduate. <laughs> Seven generations of an Oregon family, this is in the male line, other branches of this tree in the female line cover stories that that are continued all over America and emigrants from all over the world. So we started with Deacon Fulkerson, uh, who was married to Mary Ramsey Miller, who died coming over the trail of mountain fever. And he remarried. His son Joshua married Virginia Fulkerson. We go on to the next generation was Newton McDaniel and Pearl Selter, then Harry McDaniel and Mabel Brooks, and then comes James Brooks McDaniel and Donna Jean Meyer, Carrie McDaniel and Christian Burnish, and the seventh generation born in Oregon, Claire Max and Jillian McDaniel Burnish. Stein Jonason loved to talk about this story and stories of other Linfield founders. Dr. Charles Walker, during his time as college president, asked him to write about the founders, and I know he started because he talked to us. It was a daunting task since the number of founders exceeded 40. I don't know if this project, where it went, but I hope there are fragments left to be found. Hello. 
now that we have heard the, the facts behind the, the founding of the college and your family history, we do have some follow-up questions. Good. And our first one for you is, why do you think the founders persevered to keep McMinnville College operational? Well, I don't think that's too hard to understand. Uh, one of the things you have to think about is what was the educational level of the people that were here? And some of them did have more opportunity than others. So amongst all these people were many educated people. But I'll, I'll give you a quick story. In Yamhill County, there was a, at this particular juncture, uh, recording marriages and whatever. They had to set up a, a county government very quickly. And um, there was nobody who could write at that, in that particular group. And so it fell to the lot of a 12-year-old girl uh, for a period of time. So you can see that it was a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. You had some very educated people. That I never want people to think that they weren't bright people or that they, they weren't knowledgeable. I like to, it's my favorite compliment has come from my granddaughter. And she says, Grandma, you can do stuff. I love it. And if there was anything that these people could do, it was stuff. And they were very wise in the ways they, they made their living from nothing. And they lived to very old ages. So they, you assume they figured out how, about abodes and, and growing and cattle and hunting and fishing and what you do if you didn't have food, etc. And I, I think there was always a yearning uh, to learn. And I think there was an innate, even though you have to pay for things whenever, the idea of paying or giving away some of your valuable resources to start a school was pretty hard to do. I think the, the people admired those who had had the opportunity, like Fulkerson. He was immediately a leader because of his, his advanced abilities. So I think there was a general yearning in the population to get things in a better place. And we expect our children today to uh, be uh, more educated than we are and to be more su successful than we I think it's the same spirit. So you mentioned in, uh, while you were talking that it's impossible to separate the church's history from the school's history. I find it impossible, yes. So how has it changed over the years? It, it didn't change for a long time. We lived in a very patriarchal society and, and I'll, I'll tell you from my own experience that uh, I, I married and had three children. And in the 1960s, my children were in very impressionable ages. And the society in America was changing radically. The opportunity for women to expand their horizons was beginning to be shown. Um, the moral conduct that we had imbued in us from the very earliest, very earliest people and, and, and back to the Calvinists in Europe was very strict regime. Well, those things began to be questioned severely. And I, I, at that time, I, oh, oh our, the fabric of our society is being torn. Well, 
I needed to be a little educated, me too. <laughs> um, I think that the needs of the people changed, and I think that they no longer, and don't today, just accept somebody telling them, like the, those early church rules were, are obviously ridiculous. <laughs> they, they don't have any relevance to how life is lived, or there is no word about moderation. They certainly didn't know what moderation was. You either behaved or you were out. <laughs> And, and they tattled on one another. They started their church services by tattling on one another. I was, I would have been awful. I'd have hated that church. <laughs> I mean, it was really funny. You were out Saturday night and I saw you. <laughs> frolicking. Frolicking, yes, please, frolicking. <laughs> oh, God. I wonder if they dared smile, except behind closed doors. Uh, Obviously, our society grew. We have a much more educated population. And I'll have to bring you up to date on why I feel that way. Um, I think things such as television news are doing us a great disservice in the world. There has always been problems, and there have always been good folk trying to solve the problems. And we are beset with the fact that, oh, our society is self-imploding and, uh, and so forth and so on. I don't think it's true. And uh, I very firmly believe this, that we can change and should change and we should moderate our views, but we should never feel self-destructive. And uh, we, we have a very destructive verbal battle going on over the next presidency, which I find just either laughable or disgusting on any given day. <laughs> anyway, I think we've grown. Excellent. So I believe you were a freshman at Linfield in 1949? Yes. Is that correct? And then eventually went on to receive a master's degree in 1963 for painting and landscaping. And so we're wondering, between these two experiences, what were, what was college life like for you, both at Linfield and then when you went <laughs> on to get a master's degree? Well, we didn't have a smorgasbord of opportunities. Oh, I, I have a granddaughter, Claire, who happens to be president of her class and, and been on a swimming pole team that won the state championship and all these wonderful things and, and, and told you, you could do anything you want to. Well, that's not true. You can moderate anything. Um, anyway, my choice of going to Linfield, um, they had no art program and I wanted art. But if I lived at home, my mother was a teacher, my father a journeyman printer, and had had his own newspaper. If I lived at home the first year, I could go on. And so I lived at home because it was financially feasible, and you'll love it. My <laughs> tuition was paid by the month. It was $12. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that wouldn't even buy you lunch now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I, I went to Linfield and I, that's when I first learned and met Colina Anderson and Stein Jonasson and, and all of the families. These people have been very, very loyal to Linfield. Now this is just 
not too many years after the end of the Depression. And you have to realize it's miraculous that Linfield survived or anything survived because there just wasn't enough money to go around and enough, I mean, the, the state of the economy and the will of the people, it was a very sad time. And those teachers were paid practically nothing, but they hung on and at, the, at about the time I got there, they awarded all the people who'd given a lifetime of service and somehow survived doctor's degree. So we have Dr. Elkington, who was an honorary, Dr. Mahaffey, an honorary, and so forth and so forth. And, uh, and I think they were happy with that. I mean, they had had a good life. Life isn't dependent upon the amount of money, but the amount of creativity you put into it anyway. So I went to Linfield because my parents asked me to. And uh, it's also fascinating that there was a sense of hope. When you grow up with a sense of hope, you think, well, I'll do this and I can go on. I lived, I grew up in northern Minnesota, and God knows it's the coldest place in the whole United States. And my father finally threw down the snow shovel, that was before automatic blowers and all that, and said, we are leaving <laughs> for warmer climates. And it was really interesting. And I said, where are we going? And he said, I don't really know. But I have, a, I have we're going to the coast, the west coast. I have, a, I'm an ability, and my, your mom is a teacher, and they'll need us wherever we go. Now that was, I've looked back on it at the time, I thought it was a very disgusting thing. I was 16. <laughs> at any rate, uh, we took the whole summer and went to places like Glacier Park, first time I ever slept in a sleeping bag, because, you know, in Minnesota, this state bird is a mosquito, and it's an impossibility to have slept outside unless you wanted to be eaten alive. And uh, all kinds of new things came in, and the first time I saw the ocean, I was 60, I just stood there. Just transfixed. <laughs> At any rate, my father went into the news register and uh, Phil Bledeen asked, he said, he asked Phil Bledeen if he had a job for a journeyman pinder. Always, you always have a job for a man of that ability. And he said, oh, just a minute. Uh, my wife needs a teaching job. So he picked up the phone and called the county school superintendent and said, I just hired a teacher for you. <laughs> no, no, you got to wait. Uh, my daughter is a junior in high school. She needs a college. He says, Linfield. <laughs> and that's how we moved to McMinder. <laughs> now, you don't hear people having that kind of hope. And, and I've looked back on it all my life and thought, what a wonderful summer it was. I didn't know it at the time. I thought it was pretty good some of the time. <laughs> anyway, I ended up at Linfield and I met many fine people. And, and uh, then um, I went on to the University of Oregon to uh, the art school. I very happily loved the art school. And there were, um, I married. Um, well, I, I suppose side issues are what, what make history. As a junior in high school, uh, a whole group of girls wanted to go to the beach. And we got a 
Linfield girl to be our chaperone. Now, poor thing, I felt so sorry for her. Anyway, <laughs> she left smiling. We went to the beach. There were two homes. Now, there's a, a hardware store down, downtown that used to be called Taylor Hardware. And two brothers owned side-by-side -side homes at the beach. And I, you know, innocently went in and asked one for the use of their cabin. Well, it was not wonderful, so of course he would say, sure, you can use it. And we got there with our Linfield girl in tow, and things were going quite well. And next door, there seemed to be an explosion because there was another Taylor cabin and Pat Taylor had just come home from service in the Second World War. All of my husband and all of the men had been uh, in the class of 1946 and they had all been conscripted because he wanted to bring the GIs who'd been four years in some pretty awful conditions home. So you had a choice and uh, they had a lot of fun. They all went out and they said, well, I'm gonna be a Marine, I'm gonna be here and I'm gonna be there. Well, this was a year later and they came home in a year, happily with GI Bill tucked in their pockets. It, it was a hoot. Jim was in the, the uh, occupation army in Japan mm -hmm. and that is an, another story that you would like. At any rate, and may end, made wonderful friends there and so forth. Anyway, who was next door but all of these ex-soldiers, sailors, marines, <laughs> and I met the two men that I eventually married. <laughs> I'll spare you some of the details. <laughs> but at any rate, um, I met Jim Hart and all of that group fun-loving as they were, went to Linfield that first summer just as a lark and then they then all went on to the University of Oregon. Malcolm Marsh is in, in law school and, and all of them. There were professional schools that they wanted to go to and uh, so going to the art school was kind of fun because I certainly knew a lot of people. <laughs> and. Uh, you were, as a woman at that time, and I'm sure you'll find this interesting, if you arrived at your senior year and you weren't engaged, you were a failure. And it isn't whether you marry or whether you don't marry, but that assumption didn't serve us well, really, mm -hmm. because the women did not develop as well as the men did. Many of them would quit after sophomore or junior year, it, and this was in all schools, and uh, would not finish their education and so forth. I did finish, but I married as a junior in college, and uh, uh, I'll spare you the story about all of that, but my husband developed brain tumors, and. Uh, while teaching uh, economics at Linfield and so I was back to McMinnville on the staff as a Linfield wife. Um, uh, he died and uh, I, it was it was an interesting period. Uh, a woman did what was necessary to make her husband's life good. So I, I'm sure now it's a much more cooperative venture. Uh, fortunately, I married very nice people, and but that didn't always work very well. 
So enter the women's revolution. <laughs> Unfortunately, I had one daughter who really took it to heart. <laughs> anyway, she's moderated her views too. <laughs> A balance in all things. Does that answer any of that question? Absolutely. <laughs> So we see your your big uh, book over there, the five hundred the five hundred years and seventeen generations of history. Uh -huh. What made you want to publish that kind of book, and what fascinates you the most about the old the old stories? Well, I didn't know that at eighteen I was a genealogist, but I am a genealogist. That's one of my hats. I got lots of hats. I I don't like to be bored. I guess. <laughs> I grew up in a family that told stories. And my grandfather was a wonderful storyteller. And I'll never know what prompted me, but I used to go to their home, which is on Lake Bemidji in Minnesota, beautiful home, and spend the summer. Where, and I had three bathing suits, and they would all get white from just jumping in the water and getting out. And I, during that summer, I asked my grandfather stories about his family who had come down wagon train into Wisconsin. They were the first settlers in uh, that area of Wisconsin. And uh, they were French Canadians. And it, eventually, the story went all the way back to the French going into Canada in 1632. And I, just, I was just riveted with the stories. And I wrote them down a little bit here and a little bit there. And it wasn't very much longer my grandfather died. Mm. And I realized what a wealth went with him. And I started, I started. I've written this about five times, I think. I started with pamphlet form and, and uh, whatever. And I finished uh, when Jim Hart died. And then Jim McDaniel and I got married. And he said, Joe, you wouldn't not do my family. <laughs> well, his family is about that much of it. <laughs> oh, I grandly said, of course I'll do your family. And then I was, woo-wee. <laughs> it turns out that why I think it's interesting, and I think it's interesting for every family to think about it, is where did you come from? Where did you come into this country? And where do you fit into the history of this country? And it's been so fun. You're asking about Linfield. Well, of course, we can come up with a pioneer every time. And, and so our family was part of the migration that led to where you are now. Um, and there are, I have helped about six people write their family books once I just concluded this spring. And, they, and they've, t they've taken sometimes as much as five years with each family for me to help them. Because, and they got just riveted with it. Um, we used to take the kids on Memorial Day and we would go try to find where the pioneers were buried. That was just fun. That's the end of their story. Well, there was one, Francis Embry McDaniel, who came down the Oregon Trail with eight children, all by herself. Mm. Well, she had a cousin, but her husband had died in a fall over a picket fence with peritonitis. In other words, bad bugs. And we couldn't find her. We found everybody else, everybody else. So we went, we were, by then we had a vineyard home and we had a vineyard and we got a neighboring girl to go with us who loved our family. And she said, this is a dumb thing to do. 
And I said, oh, we're just, and we started telling her stories. And by then we had figured out, with the help of a local historian, I, we'd figured out where we were going. So we got out to Recreal, we went into a farmyard, off the beaten path, we went through a wheat field, some kind of field, it was growing something. What was it, Jim? Wheat. Wheat. And turkeys. <laughs> and turkeys. <laughs> and in the middle was a pioneer cemetery. So we hopped out of the car, car and oh, we were excited. Here were all these stones. And we started looking and looking. Well, her first husband had died and she'd remarried and she had a different name. And all of a sudden we found her and, and our kids went, yeah, we found her. And Paige says, this is silly, but I think it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I think helping you connect to your country helping you understand your surroundings, helping you understand the people that are around you. I think it all comes under the heading of a family story, and the more you learn, the more fun it is. And I've been doing it now a long time. <laughs> it's really fun. The kids, have, the grandkids would have their teachers say, oh, you know, you need, to, you need to write down who your parents and grandparents were and so forth. And our grandchildren would go up and say, how many pages do you want? <laughs> I'll bring my grandma in. <laughs> I'd like to comment. Time also. Of course. Do you want to um, have a seat, Jim? All Great. Right. So Jim McDaniel has joined us. And Jim, I believe you had a comment. Yes. I want to uh, discuss the subject of the importance of uh, recording and writing down this history. Because in my own experience, much of this I didn't know. And my father didn't know. And his brother didn't know. Uh, first of all, Donna Jean mentioned uh, Francis Embry McDaniel coming to Oregon in 1844. And she was uh, my father's great-grandmother, but he didn't know that she existed. They knew nothing about her. They knew uh, their grandfather, Joshua, but they were skeptical when we uh, turned up the fact that she was buried in a cemetery in, in uh, Rickrell, near Rickrell. In fact, uh, they said, well, finally, if you say so, I guess we'll believe it. That's right. That was their comment. <laughs> Therefore, uh, that underscores the necessity for recording and uh, putting it down on paper. Uh, also, uh, in, in regards to the uh, Fulkersons and those people, the, um, and the founding of Linfield College, and the 40 founders, my father knew nothing about that. And he mm. only found out uh, from Stein Jordison. And dad was, uh, I think, must have been 80 years old at the time. And Stein came out there where he lived in McMinnville and uh, said, did you know that you're descended from uh, uh, Fulkerson? No, I never heard of him. And yet uh, the families lived together and, uh, at one time near um, Holmes Gap. Holmes Gap, uh, just uh, north of Brickrio. Uh, Another example of this uh, lack of knowledge uh, regarding family genealogy and history and uh, experience in certain areas is right here in Dundee. 
Oh, yeah. On my mother's side. Oh, uh, the um, first people that took a homestead right here in Dundee, in the surrounding area, up in the hill and over across towards Newburgh, were the um, Shucks. Shucks. S-H-U-C-K. I think it was originally Shulk. Shulk from Alsace. 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 Anyway, when we moved to Dundee, I knew nothing of this. The only thing I had known over a period of time was my grandmother, who was born in this area and grew up here, talked about her uncle, uh, Ramsey, and he was a judge and a lawyer, and she was very proud of him, and she talked about Judge Ramsey a lot, but that's the only thing I knew. And my mother and my aunt, uh, her sister, knew something about it. That they had the experience of uh, coming to visit this area uh, over a period of time, especially in the summer, where they could come and visit with the relatives. But back to the point, the we knew nothing. I had no idea except what I just mentioned about our heritage here. And so the Shucks were the first, and then the next were the uh, Ramses, who lived. Uh, and homesteaded over right next to uh, on Dayton Road. On Dayton Road, Dayton Avenue, just south of um, Newburgh. Uh -huh. And they had uh, what they called the grist mill. They ground wheat for flour there. And uh, my grandmother did show me a picture of the Ramsey Mill, so I had some knowledge of this. Some something happened there. And uh, so when we moved to Dundee. After having lived in the area for some years, up in the vineyard and back and forth in various times, uh, I walked up to the hill on top here of the cemetery. And that cemetery contains the first of my uh, mother's relatives here. And they were the first to uh, be buried there. And uh, all those tombstones are still there. Chuck, uh, Ramsey, and all their descendants, or many of their descendants. <clears throat> and as a side issue about there, look at those tombstones. It's shocking how many children died at the age of one, two, and three. Uh, a good example was during the time uh, after the First World War, the influenza epidemic. And many of those children were uh, part of that tragedy. Uh, two of them were at Oregon State at the time. So, uh, anyway, that's that's my point, is that how important it is to get this down on the paper and uh, record it for the archives uh, over a period of time. And maybe sometime somebody will come back and say, well, who are all those people and what did they do and how come? So that's my story. Thank you. Oh, I finally found it. <laughs> Well timed. <laughs> and with um, Ramsey, the Ramsey Mill, there, there's a little creek down there. Herbert Hoover used to like to swim in it, so it's called Herbert Hoover's Swimming Hole. <laughs> uh, the Indian, I, th I think about that family, particularly because the, the Dayton Highway is an old Indian trail. 
and Ramsey's donation land claim came all the way to Dundee. And on every side of the road, when he died, the different children took different places. And when we came out here, there were still cousins living on that, that road. And you're talking quite a few years later. <laughs> Oh, we can, so does that answer your question? It's, it's fun to know and the kids get into it, really get into it. Actually, it even happened in Dundee grade school. Jelly came home and says, Grandma, you'll never know what they want me to do. <laughs> I said, they just want you to learn about your family. <laughs> well, your family is very lucky to have you and have you chronicle all of the history, 500 pages or years worth, mm -hmm. however, it's 1,000 plus when we scanned it in? Yes. Over 1,000 pages? I, that, well, thank you for doing that. Oh, you yeah. showed that you cared. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's only one person in the family who's read, read the whole book, and that's our daughter, Claudia. <laughs> and she said, well, Mom, you're a good writer. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, I, you don't have to be, you don't have to look forward to that. Just ask and write down a few of the stories. The most important thing any of you can always do is interview the oldest person that you know in your family mm -hmm. because you may never have a second chance. And it should save you a heck of a lot of work if they just tell you. <laughs> or write a book. <laughs> What else do you have on your list? I think you covered all the questions that we had. Is there anything that we didn't ask you or any other stories that you want to well, make sure? One of the interesting things about having interviewed many in our family, I think about <clears throat> my grandmother, who they were some of the early pioneers in Wisconsin, started the first Episcopal Church in the West. <laughs> that was western Wisconsin, <laughs> lived on a road called Wagon Landing, <laughs> and so forth. Uh, they, their school was very, um, she graduated at 18, having taken trigonometry and all, a great variety of subjects, and the next year she taught at a grade school out there and probably knew more than the grade school kids. Well, my grandmother was a very bright lady. I had her own little Surrey and horse and buggy and rode to church and then, or school, and then she had, uh, they hired a second teacher, so she became the principal. To the end of my grandmother's life, when she was visiting us, jetting around the country. Mm. And so I think of the period of time that we, our family has evolved in, and your family is, has universal, universal thought. And the disruption of wars, for instance, Carrie married into the Burnish family, which were, they were born in Yugoslavia, mm -hmm. and during the Second World War, Christian said it was like you took a spoon with the population and you just stirred it up. And bad things happened. And I traced their, every time, oh, I can't believe I did this, every time one of our kids got married, I would trace the family, and so I traced the German heritage, because Burnish is German, and at their dinner before the night before their wedding, where you usually give them a patchwork quilt that was great-grandma's, I gave them their family history, 
and the, the Germans really celebrate weddings, let me tell you. They, I've never <laughs> seen anything quite like it. It goes on and on and on. And um, they all broke out and cried because their family, they, and five of them came up and said, will you help me? Will you, will you, will you? And I said, yeah. of course I will. Um, there's a yearning to know. Mm -hmm. And now I am living in a period when we have a whole lot more free choice than we've ever had. And that means we've got to make a whole lot of better decisions. And I'm very conscious of passing on this heritage because you can, this is a signpost. These are signposts. Of, and you don't want to go back to those signposts. You want to keep going down the road. And so at 84 and a half, I have watched a lot of history go by. It, I, I, there's a quote in here which I have used twice, and I'm going to use it again because I think it's really important. 10% uh, in life is what happens to you. 90% is what you do with what happens to you. If you've made a bad choice, learn from it. If you are unhappy with what's happening to you now, do something about it. I just feel that it's up to us to live in an enlightened way. That's my comment. Well, Donna Jean, you are magnificent. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, I have a few more I was going to give you. <laughs> are you going to read them? Or yes. Do you want, oh, I'm my goodness. My first comment here is what to tell. I have evolved as well as Linfield and when your next birthday is 85 it's about time. One of the hazards is too many stories to tell. That's really true and your eyes are surprisingly unglazed. The result is to have your listeners eyes glaze over and they tend to drop off to sleep. How to keep them awake becomes the challenge. Each of the short question sketches that I've written will highlight someone who was highly regarded by many and in some cases looked up to by all. I've left out the gossip and the negatives. Neither has much educational value. I guess we learn from it because we have to. That wise soul, Anonymous, wrote, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% what you do with what happens to you. Splendid. That gives us hope for the bad stuff and the, and the thoughtless people we come across. The people that I've chosen were well known during their tenure on the staff at Linfield. They are Paul Gebauer, Colini Anderson, and Stein Jonasson. Another stem winder uh, was Stein, and also there's a stem winder in Hap Mahaffey. Have you ever heard that name? Mm -hmm. Oh, good. An extraordinary speech teacher who everyone knew and had a very successful career at Linfield. Hod Terrell was universally admired for his brilliance and great lectures. Gordon Frazee was a pillar of the Baptist Church and an outstanding teacher in the religion and other departments. He also was another Pied Piper. A tall, light, nice looking person with a wonderful personality. He fit the description bigger than life, whatever that means. Stein Jonasson was a history teacher, a leader in the Baptist Church, and he was mayor of McMinnville, I'll have you know. He recorded history and left a legacy of our past. He loved McMinnville in all of the stories that he ever saw or met. He became 
a primary storyteller for Linfield and McMinnville. I've included many of his ideas and insights, especially about the origins of Linfield and the Baptist Church. He was asked by one of the presidents of Linfield, and I've already told, talked to you about this, about the, doing the sketches for, of the uh, associates. And I'm sorry to say, I don't think it ever was finished. So choices, choices, choices. Inspirational people who've been a part of Linfield. Do you know the name Clara, Kratt, Gebauer, and Paul Gebauer? No. Good. Then I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you something that you need to know. Paul Gebauer, who made myriad contributions to a wide number of fields, could be described as a missionary, statesman, strategist, educator, anthropologist, an art collector, all with a heavy dose of German personality. The art is a stretch, though. I'm saying that. He was appreciative of the people and their native skills, and it was clear, though, it was Clara whose training put her in a unique position to understand what she was seeing. She, uh, her art was her interest and her vocation. She'd graduated from the Chicago Art Institute as a gifted silversmith, among other talents, and brought out a great art appreciation in Paul. He became an articulate writer on the subject with additional interest in sociology. It needs to be noted that they made a perfect pair to appreciate what they found in the Cameroon. You know where the Cameroon is? The Gebauer collection in the Portland Art Museum was a collaborative effort. Clara also brought her teaching skills to Africa and used them with skill and effectiveness. Alan Effa wrote a long, detailed, I'm giving it to you because you'll need it, biography uh, in the International Bulletin of Missionary Research. Having known them both, I find his description accurate. Paul was articulate, sure of his opinions and spoke loud enough to be heard all over campus without the need of amplification. My husband was teaching economics at Linfield when the Gebauers arrived for their final McMinnville stay and we were part of the welcoming party. They were not new to the city, having taken several of their furloughs from the Cameroon mission in McMinnville. We were fascinated by them and we never tired of listening to their stories. Paul was a soldier in the German army in World War I and a chaplain in the American army in the Second World War. Now that's a trick. And let's see, that alone was an unusual turn of events. Paul was born in 1900 and drafted into the German army. He came from a family that had been faithful to the Baptist church as lay people and ministers and they were particularly supportive of the Cameroon. In 1928, Paul emigrated to the United States. He finished a high school course and went directly into the Southern Baptist Seminary. In 1931, he graduated a U.S. citizen and was appointed as a missionary to the Cameroon Highlands among the Kaka people who had never had a school or mission as well as other tribal groups. The outer areas of the Cameroons were well developed, but this highland region was hard to traverse and the white men hadn't been there. Others just went around, leaving a small, undeveloped population. 
During his long tenure, he developed hospitals, schools, wrote down the native languages, which had never been recorded. As an apprentice, Paul learned the art of spider divination among the Kakas. He wrote down what he learned and photographed the events. When Paul and Clara retired, they all had almost 9,000 pictures and 2,400 slides, which were acquired by the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art. Despite a lack of formal training in photography, his work was masterful. While in the, uh, in the Cameroons, the National Geographic left a standing order. Any slide he didn't want, they did, and they'd pay $100, which was quite a big sum at that time. And so whenever he needed a little extra at the mission, he sold him a slide. The Gabauers showed the eye and technical st skill of the artists that they were. In a few short paragraphs, I cannot describe such a full life, but I will include the biographical article with this essay, which I encourage you to read. In 1961, Paul and Clara retired and came back to McMinnville. It was time for their children to go to high school and college, and they wanted them to do so in the United States. Other missionary children that we knew and knew well came back from India as problem children unable to fit into the American culture very well. It had not been easy for them. Not Ann and Walter Gebauer. Walter discovered a love of football at Mackay and many discovered handsome Walter. <laughs> so to no avail, he remained single for many years and enjoys a professional life in Seattle. Anne was gifted also and she remained in America. During one furlough, Paul did a bachelor's degree at Linfield. Uh, never mind, he'd not gone before, no problem. He received an honorary doctorate of divinity from Linfield in 1952, and in 1957, Queen Elizabeth II had bestowed upon him the Order of the British Empire. In 1962, Paul took a position on the faculty of his alma mater, Linfield Cottage, teaching modern language and anthropology, which I thought was kind of a waste of his skills. All of these facts are interesting and describe a unique couple. My interest is adding to the story, of adding to the story, is to record some significant events that, to my knowledge, haven't been written down. Research, have done, the research has done a good job of chronicling, chronic, chronicling the mileposts, and I'll string a yarn or two between the two. Highly unscientific, probably not as accurate as it should be after 50 years. Colleges and universities try to offer a real cultural experience to their students, principally to broaden their horizons and challenge them to expand their experience in many ways. In this modern era, speaking guests were many, from Nobel laureates to a Portland teacher and preacher. <coughs> guests have been Henry Kissinger, Beverly Sills, Ellie Wiesel, and local luminary Marcus Borg, a smorgasbord of learning in diverse subjects, politics, world leadership, art, music, and religion, and the list is long. None were more interesting than the retiring missionaries, Paul and Clara Gebauer. We came to uh, know them, and we never heard enough stories. Retirement was anything but. Paul died as his last book was heading to the printers, fortunately a completed manuscript, and I'm giving you my copy today. I think you have one also, don't you? I think there is one in your collection, but we'll, we can double check. Anyway, yeah. you, you need to. Okay. And I'm happy to send it with you. My stories were heard at their home, 
faculty gatherings, and others. I will try to share my experience as a casual observer and admirer of them both. They were what you would call a power couple today, and most of us stood in awe of them. Some of us knew them better than others, but they really did keep their own counsel. They weren't just folks. Paul respected and admired the people he went to serve, and he helped them to come into the 20th century with the understanding of the world around them, a different approach from the missionaries of old. He was an enlightened teacher and friend, and he and his wife served an entire generation and would love them as family. When speaking, Paul took you on a trip, and you became part of the experience. Imagine that you have come to a country that has only walking trails, no roads, so you walk village to village. You meet folks along the way and gladly stop for a rest and a chat. You did have to learn the language to chat, and we did, and then you continue on. You meet all kinds of wonderful people that way. Eventually, we were given a Jeep and rolled along. That was a separation that I regretted. We no longer talked to everyone we met along. That was a separation from the people. It was not unusual while walking to have our friends whisper and say, do you hear that? I would look around. Of course, I didn't hear what they heard. They would tell me there was a herd of animals coming down yonder mountain and they were coming our way. <laughs> I definitely would squint in that direction. But their hearing was attuned to their needs and it was acute. I watched that fade away. I only hoped by educating these people I would not be subtracting such worthwhile skills. Early in my mission to develop the Cameroon Highlands, I started to organize, which would later be the schools, hospitals, stations, and chapels, and all, and added an artist, teacher, and companion to my staff. I married a great lady. All ladies were great ladies to him. Clara Kratt, born in Chicago, educated, as I've said, at the Art Institute, and additionally trained as a teacher. It needs only to be noted that whenever he saw a lady friend, he would say, and how is the great lady today? <sighs> Who can resist such flattery? And we didn't. <laughs> this delivered in a booming voice for all to hear. You have been properly greeted. Clara was well-educated, tall, dignified, rather reserved, and chose her words carefully. She was friendly, welcoming, and interested in those she met, but she kept a very close counselor, so it seemed to me. I really liked her. Her brother was head of the School of Music at the University of Oregon when I was a student there, so you can see it was truly a gifted family. Paul and Clara appeared to the casual observer to be very different, one spontaneous and one reserved, but that may have been the secret to their long marriage. <laughs> As chapels and special holiday events developed, they tried to encourage native building style, styles and native artwork and local, local, he kept saying, governing of events. The people were instructed to do it themselves. Paul and Clara would try to attend these special times, and she would know that after the programs were over, they'd take the new art and they'd throw it on the scrap pile out by the edge of the village for the termites to eat up. 
Ah, Clara would notice the great art in the waste. And so she asked first the village elders if she could have the junk pile, which they happily agreed to. This junk pile can now be viewed at the Portland Art Museum in the Cameroon exhibit and the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art in New York called the Gabauer Collections. It was not easy. They sent trunk loads home to a friend at the University of Wisconsin to store for them. This friend realized the importance of what he had stored and he tried to claim it as his own. A lawsuit later, it was returned to the Gebauers in Oregon. Some time after they retired, Paul with furrow brow mentioned to me many times how worried he was that he'd never see it again until it didn't come until very late in Paul's life. We all sighed a collective sigh of relief for Paul and Clara and for all of us, the final recipients. A walk with Clara through this display on dedication night was spellbinding. The long claws on the wall had been woven on a loom set up in the middle of the village and had gone straight through the village. They had no concept of the wheel to roll up the warp. But the artist was so respected by everybody in the village that they, they, they it was a holy man. I could not believe this. I mean, they, Paul went out to the Cameroons in 1931 and they didn't understand. That's how uh, neglected this area of the Cameroons had been. Um, also, there was a miniature village in Brass, tiny, they, they're pictured here. Now you're going to have to look at this. Pictured here, they had big roofs, uh, straw roofs that shed the rain, and grass roofs that they would put on, and these villages. And they're perfectly represented in these miniatures. I don't know where they got the metal, but that man cast that in the bonfire. And Clara recognized his great talent and befriended him and mentored him and he became worldwide famous. And one of his first villages is sitting in the Portland Art Museum. So you gotta go see it. Um, also, they, uh, I want to talk a little bit about one more thing. It's called king stools. King stools represent the spirit of preceding generations, and they were highly prized. And they were they belonged to the king, and you weren't going to give away grandma to the neighbor. So, but Paul was given king stools in admiration and love, and there was one in his home, in their home in McMinnville. Uh, they had two or three of them. Uh, a wonderful wood mask hung on their fireplace. The, Gauer, the Gabauers chose New York's Museum of Metropolitan Art and the Portland Art Museum as homes for this great collection, and now we can all enjoy them. Now, here's the fun one. The Queen of England made a trip around the world in 1957 when they arrived in Africa. They invited the Gilbowers to join them for a special lunch and to award the uh, uh, Order of the British Empire. The Cameroon chieftains were adamant. Paul was an important person and could not go alone. That would be a disgrace. Oh dear, it would appear that no one cared or offered to accompany him, so Paul sighed a sigh. 
Claire describes this trip across Africa to a group of 40 ladies invited to our vineyard home. Paul had died and we still wanted to hear their stories and I asked her to wear the Order of the British Empire. She said that if Paul were here, he would not have allowed her to wear it, but in, we were in Dundee and out of the limelight she would. It was a large gold pin in a many-pointed star with succeeding smaller stars. It, it was a sculpture. I don't know how her shoulder could hold it up. It was impressive, and that's far too small a word to describe it. And here's the story she told. Paul had limited the chiefs to 100 bearers, no more. <laughs> I can hear him saying it. And the 300 plus folks started the long walk complete with elephants. <laughs> A true safari was underway. Every small village they encountered took special preparation before they entered. The chiefs would <clears throat> dress in splendid robes and plumes, sit atop their elephants, and they would make a splendid parade through because they were important people. <sighs> they would finally, after they got out of the village, dismount, put their finery, and move on. Clara and Paul had to make do, do with the mission jeep. <laughs> it took three or four weeks for this dramatic, funny, and trying parade to reach the royal light yacht. It was an experience. <laughs> Once there, uh, they said, we're going to have lunch with you when you go to see the queen. We would not want you unaccompanied. <sighs> okay, so <laughs> Paul tells whoever, the concierge, I guess. I, I have more than one here. So here we are. We go onto the royal yacht. These plumed dressed chiefs and Paul and Clara. Clara and Prince Philip were on one side of the table and Queen Elizabeth and Paul were on the other and the chiefs were scattered about, I guess. Um, Clara said, oh, he was a wonderful lunch companion. And that seemed to be the high point for her. I never heard Paul say, but I'm sure he would have described her as a great lady. <laughs> and they returned, returned the same way that they had come. And it just left us in hysterics thinking of these, <laughs> this trip across Africa. Retired life in McMinnville did not have quite that color, but they relished the return home. About this time, the United Nations were meeting in New York. Paul's school had turned out a generation of scholars, politicians, teachers, and more. All the officials of the Highlands were Paul's boys. Those assigned to the United Nations would make a stop in McMinnville on their way to visit the Gebauers. Paul loved the visit of his boys and he basked in the glow of their wonderful self-government. Hope you think this is a story that needs to be in your archive. And there's always one more thing. Uh, poor Rachel, she's had so many from me. <laughs> I'm looking through. They're always worth it. The Art of Cameroon by Paul Gebauer. One more time before I give you my copy, I came on the page about art acquisition. The, Bauer, the Gebauers made it clear that they did not steal the art. They had acquired the art as gifts and refuse from the piles. It was also, it turns out to be a very small gathering from the whole grassland plateau. How much can you send home in a trunk? 
there were some things that the tribes didn't want to take out of the country and Paul helped them facilitate a local museum. When the Gebauers retired and returned to the U.S., they diligently tried to get the indigenous people to save their heritage. The monumental artwork that we've seen in their 9,000 pictures is not being done today. And they truly knew what they saw was museum worthy. In fact, the small amount that they sent back was infinitesimal when compared to the rest of the work. Also, they had to charge the American institutions for gaining the collections. Missionary salaries in the 1930s were infinitesimal and certainly nothing to retire on. My faculty, my husband was on the faculty when Paul was, and I can attest to the fact that college salaries were not great. <laughs> Paul felt that the final distribution of photos, books, artwork that he'd completed his mission. The mission was beneficiary of three generations of the Gebauer family in Germany and the U.S. The family interest in the Cameroon was one of the reasons Paul chose to do his life work there. And that's the story of Paul Gebauer. The wonderful person. I, I think because he was bigger than life, it was hard to fit him into the faculty. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost certain. Yeah. Now there's one more, and, and, and by now you're la you can appreciate the pillow you're sitting on instead yes, of sitting thank on you. the hard chair. <laughs> very, very thoughtful. <laughs> uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Colleen Anderson because. I talked about the fact that the women began to emerge during my Middle Ages period. The Lindenfield Archive has all of Colina's books that we were able to gather and many of her Christmas poems with homemade drawings that were sent all over the world and prized by those of us who knew her and other information about this special lady, but few to describe who she was and what animated her life. And this is my small addition to her story. The vital statistics, thank to you wonderful people who pointed out that there was a 1940 census. I'm ashamed to say I was a genealogist. Anyway, from the 1940 census I gleaned, Elam J. Anderson was born in Illinois in 1890 and died in 1944 in Redland, at Redlands College in California. Colina Michael Anderson was born in New York in 1892 and died in McMinnville. They had children. Francis Anderson, born in China in 1920 and died in Washington, D.C. Victor Anderson was born in 1922 in China. Elam J. Anderson was born in China in 1927. Reverend Anderson Jr. retired to his parents' home on Baker Street and died died there in uh, 215, so the family owned that house at least 80 or 90 years. In addition, Frances Michael Colina's mother lived with them. She was born in New York in 1872 and lived with the Andersons for many years and died in McMinnville. I know nothing of their early history, education, and marriage. I was just beginning to collect family history from my grandfather. The word genealogist meant nothing, so late smart. Any genealogist will tell you the same thing. Interview your oldest living relative. Sources, first, first, first. Remembering to plan your, chest, your questions carefully. You may never have another opportunity.
I knew Elam Anderson Jr. and I could have asked him about his family history anytime. You'd think I was a smart and not so smart genealogist. Anytime in the number of years he lived in McMinnville. In 1950, I was more concerned with good manners and hoping I didn't sound like I was prying into their personal life. Darn it. On the way, <laughs> on to what I remember of our conversation 66 years ago. I believe two of them had a college education, the, the, the two of them had a college education and were chosen for the mission field because of their ability. Elam Anderson and his wife Kalina accepted a mission post in China. He was about 30 years old, an ordained Baptist minister and educator. His wife, Colina, gave birth to their children, which I've enumerated to you. It was a rich period for them, and they absorbed all they could while they lived there. Their memories lasted throughout their lives. It was never an easy place to live, but they tried their best. China has a tumultuous history in any century. What happened every time a dynasty failed or weakened, or even if it lasted a hundred years, the warlords would arise and try to gain the upper hand. I will concentrate on the 20th century. The first great fight of the century was a Boxer Rebellion in 1911. But as we all know, wars do not decide who is right, only who remains to claim the power. All was present was a large population of poor people. Chang Kai-shek, Chang Kai-shek. He's come up to hear me. I'm Chinese is not very good. Leader of the nationalists or Kuomintang. Uh, this should be a footnote, but Kalina is not grading my paper, and I'll go forth. This pronunciation emanates from the Wage Giles system of Romanization. Several uh, uh, countries occupied China, and they had invented their own Romanization system. One can assume that Chinese was not an easy language for foreigners to understand, hence ongoing changes. Today, the communists have a new system that does not even make sense to the educated Chinese, says Lady Chen. Lady was teaching Chinese at Linfield when we asked why she joined Mao Zedong Army. Her answer was, we were hungry and students and felt helpless with no work in sight. It's interesting to know that she and her husband were not allowed to join the Communist Party. That was only for the elite. She became a lawyer, because the Communists insisted, and her husband, a meteorologist, and later a very famous meteorologist. And in another twist of fate, they were forced by the Communists to, to tend pigs in the great purge of the educated. I added all this to help you shape your picture of a long and violent period of civil unrest. Um, oh, it's oversimplified to say there were too many people, not enough jobs, and a power grab. For example, Shanghai University was closed in 1920 and it wasn't even opened until 1980. This was the social and violent reality that the Andersons entered in, and lived in for 10 years early in the century. While I was wandering around painting word pictures of the times, it's notable that when Elam returned to the United States, his consul was sought on the mysteries, mysterious subject of China. Back to the 1920s, Chiang Kai-shek.
head of the nationalists, was trying to unify the country and his resistance was high. Jim McDaniel, a Chinese scholar, described the 1920s as a warlord period. Chang's army was warring against the National Red Army of Mao Zedong, who was being advised and encouraged by Russia. Both Mao and Chang had been in the same military academy, but took different views for the rest of their lives. There seemed to be a unified opinion among the war warlords and Mao that foreign intervention over a long period of time was one of the problems, and the Americans in particular. From the beginning, the Andersons of their Anderson service in China, they were not always well met, and they were uh, many times in grave danger, and finally really in grave danger. It was once again a tumultuous time to live there. Freedom is still not free today. The warlords were armed and ready to hunt for the foreigners, each with their own agenda. With short notice and dire warnings, the family fled their compound in 1928. Kalina told me that they ran for their lives. Kalina named two women who stood by them at their own peril. Other friends hid them and helped them. These women later shipped their possessions home to them. Others were not so fortunate. Kalina told me that the decision to drive them out was known and their friends were able to warn them, leave in haste. Having lived with continual political tension all of their lives in China, they had, they came to, um, came to her and said, you must leave now. No time to plan. Her husband was out of the compound, but she gathered the three children carrying the baby and fled with the help of the loyal friends. After a period of uncertainty, Elam was united with his family. There were turf wars all over China, and this one does not seem to have made the national news. Records of this must, exi must exist somewhere, but all the principles are gone. Hang on, there's only one more page. <laughs> I'm sorry that I didn't ask more questions about their life in China and their hasty exit. She did say that they left the compound in 1928. And in the 1940 census, this was confirmed. Elam Jr. was born in 1927, thus the baby to carry to safety. So my memory serves very well. I don't know anything about the escape or where they went or how long it took to return to the United States. It does appear they kept in touch with loyal friends. One can infer that they were loved by a loyal group. There are Anderson grandchildren alive today who might be able to help you, and they might not. Back in the States, it was abundantly clear that their China years were over and a new direction had to be taken. I draw a four-year blank here. In 1932, the President's Post was available at Linfield. Enum applied and won the job. It was a bumpy ride through the Depression, and he didn't go smoothly. About six years later, Reverend Anderson took a similar position at Redlands College, a Baptist affiliate in Southern California. Sadly, he had a heart attack which ended his career, August 1944, while at Redlands. He was 54. Colina and their children were in a financial pinch. None of the work Elam had done had paid a very handsome wage, even though challenging and in many ways satisfying. The presence, pressure was on Colina to support her family. 
She started a graduate program in English and returned to McMinnville to teach English at Linfield. The graduate program was a struggle to work into her busy life. She finally became Dr. Colina Anderson the year she retired, 1954. It was a personal victory and it meant a great deal for her. We all cheered. In 1949, as a freshman, I was lucky enough to have her for my teacher and a wonderful friend for years to come. She owned a craftsman-style home on Baker Street and it was a place of wonder for students. Chinese chairs and screens, dishes in the thousand flower pattern, and a large, that big, mottled green jade circle displayed on the mantel, the symbol of never-ending love. Everywhere you looked, there was a story to tell. Each Christmas, she invited all the foreign students to her home who wished to come. They were given the chance to read the Christmas story from the Bible in their own language. Following, they were given German treats and more that her mother had cooked for them. They were made to feel at home and cared for. Each year, Colina composed a new poem in honor of the holy season and drew her own Christmas card, always signed from the House of An, their Chinese family title and sent them all over the world. I've saved many of mine, and they are now in Kalina's folder in the archive. She was a counselor, teacher, dean of students, friend of many, and a treasure to both Linfield and the Baptist Church. She wrote about grieving, succeeding, loving, caring, helping others. Her final book, Don't Put On Your Slippers Yet, and I've taken her title to heart, all the topics were events that she'd experienced firsthand. Running from China to save their lives, supporting her family after the untimely death of her husband, struggling to finish her education, later struggling with the sad loss, as we all did, of her beautiful daughter Frances to cancer, a vivacious, caring, and sharing woman like her mother who had um, I thought, an important advisory post to the government in Washington. When my husband died at a young age, Colina sent her a book on grieving, which I have given to you and shared her concern. In many ways, she was the conscience of Linfield in the First Baptist Church during this period. And she did demonstrate the saying about life is 10% what happens to you and 90% of what you do with what happens to you. Her teaching tenure of Linfield ran from 1946 to 1954. All the students knew her and had great respect for her. In return, she took a personal interest in all of them, a teacher who's not been forgotten. That's my story. And hooray, you're still upright. They were wonderful stories, Donna Jean, and in hearing all of these, my last question for you is, what advice would you give a young person today? Oh, don't jump to judgment. Uh, don't give up your creativity, ever. Um, be your own person, and my very favorite is the Zen dictate, seize the moment. Well, thank you so much for your time and for all of your preparation and for sharing all of those stories.
Well, they are people that I did not want to have people forget. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.